Open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, as we study the words that we just sang about Christ preparing a place for us. That's on page 1067, if you're using a a pew Bible and feel a little rusty about finding your way around the Bible. Page 1067, John, chapter 14. And uh, just a reminder to the members of our church, uh, there's no uh, evening service tonight. We are instead having another church conversation about the idea of hiring an executive pastor. So we've been talking about this for about nine months now, and uh, we may be uh, possibly bringing this to a decision point, a vote in December. So if that's something you're a member of the church, you've had questions about, you just want to learn more about, uh, we'd love for you to come tonight at 6.15 and just continue this conversation. It's been a really good conversation, and I'm excited to hear uh, more of what people are thinking and questions they have. John chapter 14, a precious passage. Let me read verses 1 to 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father Except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Sunday, November 18th, 2012. Another day in the Christian life for us. And another day without Jesus. Another day when we gather here as a church, another Sunday to sing about Jesus, to uh, talk about Jesus, to pray in Jesus' name, and another day when he's not here with us in this room physically to receive that worship. Uh, It's another day, maybe another week, another month uh, of difficulties. You know, this is a a challenging world to live in. Uh, we, We go through this life with financial difficulties, maybe you're facing uh, relational challenges in your family, there's strained uh, communication between people, some of us have health issues, Uh, I mean Thanksgiving is this week, I mean who isn't stressed out about that, all the forced family fun and and as well as just trying to, you know, cook and prepare, I'm already exhausted thinking of all the cooking I'll be doing, so um, that laughter was appropriate, so um, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's stressful. And so this life just, you know, just keeps on rolling. Life just keeps on hitting and, and Jesus isn't here. Isn't it strange, doesn't it strike you as strange from time to time that we love Jesus, we worship Jesus, we sing to Jesus, we obey Jesus as Christians, we say we follow Jesus, and yet we've never seen him. We haven't seen him. Physically, I mean, you know, some of you guys follow sports, and you have a sports hero, 
at least you've seen that sports hero. You may not know that sports hero personally, but you watch the games on TV. You see the post-game interviews with that typical inane banter. How do you think the game went? Well, we tried hard and we worked hard and we executed our plan and, you know, whatever. But you know what they look like and you hear their voice. Or maybe, you know, you follow a certain band, you know, Maroon 5 or Coldplay or whoever, and you got their poster up on the wall and you've never met them personally, but maybe you've been to a concert. You can watch the music videos. You see their faces. And so there's a sense of connection. And here we are. We have a much deeper commitment to Jesus than a band or a sports team and yet we've never seen him. It's a strange experience being a Christian in some ways. But I'll tell you what, it certainly makes John chapter 14 super applicable to our lives. It makes this text so relevant. Not just John 14, but the whole section, John 13 to 17, this, this last supper where Jesus is talking to his disciples. Because essentially what this is, is Jesus is kind of briefing his disciples. He's getting them ready for the fact that he's about to leave them. So they've, all they've known for the last two and a half, three years is like being with Jesus 24-7, listening to him, following him. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. And now he's about to tell them, guys, I'm going. It, everything's going to change. Not just when he dies on the cross and then rises again, but after that, he's with them for a few more weeks, and then he ascends to heaven. And after that, their following of Jesus, their discipleship, is going to look radically different in some ways than what they've known for the previous, up to this point, two and a half, three years. Now they're going to be following Jesus without Jesus. He's going to be gone. And so he's like prepping them for this. He's, he's bracing them for this. Because in just a month's time, the disciples are going to enter into an experience that you and I have known our whole lives ever since we've come to Christ, which is following Jesus without Jesus here. So I just feel you know, this, his words are so helpful here because he's not just speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to all his disciples, to us as well as we live in this interim period where Christ isn't physically with us. So he says in chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. The disciples are panicking. They're freaking out. They're like, ah, and he's saying, guys, guys, he he can see it. He's like, guys, 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 don't, don't panic. Don't let your hearts be troubled. That word troubled is like stirred up, churned up. You know how it is to have your heart troubled and stirred up. On the outside, you look fine. How are you? Good, good, good. But inside, it's, it's just pressurized and foamy. It's like a, a soda can that's been shaken up. You know, I've learned not to ask my teenage son to get me a Coke. I've, you've just learned that because the temptation is too strong. Here you go, Dad. You know, uh, And on the outside, it looks fine. It looks like a normal Coke can, but inside it's pressurized and foaming and and spilling over. And and, and that's how it is. You know, you come to work, it's like, how are you? You look a little tired. I'm fine. You are tired because you were up from 3 to 4.30 worrying and stressing out, and your heart was troubled. You were churned up and stirred up. And so that's where the disciples are at. They're churned up. They're stirred up. Why? Well, look at chapter 13. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. That was a bombshell. And the disciples are panicking. Is it me? Am I going to betray Jesus? Then he told Peter, you're going to deny me. 
you know, Peter is the rock. He's the, he's the brave one. He's the guy who jumps out of boats and things. You know, Peter, if anyone's going to be the courageous disciple, it's Peter. And, and Jesus is saying, look, before the morning, tonight, before the rooster crows, before the alarm clock goes off, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. And it, it's ominous. Like, what is going to happen that's going to be so destabilizing that even stalwart Peter is going to be bailing out and bailing, I don't know who Jesus is. No, I'm not associated with him. Like, what's about to happen? But perhaps most troubling of all is the fact that Jesus essentially says, I'm leaving. Look at verse 33. Of chapter 13, sorry, chapter 13, verse 33. This is before our text. He says, my children... I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. He's saying, guys, I'm leaving, and you're not coming. I, as I read that verse, I, I had the, uh, the image in my mind of a, a soldier in his fatigues going off to war, and he's hugging his you know, four-year-old daughter and his six-year-old son, and he's like, Daddy's got to go. Where are you going? Daddy's going away. You can't come. Why can't I come? You just, you can't come. But I love you. And the kids, you know, they're all stirred up inside. And here's Jesus. He says, my little children, verse 33, I'm going and you can't come. And so they're, they're troubled. They're bothered by this. They're about to enter a new reality of following Jesus without Jesus. And you know, that's our reality to us Christians. The Christian life can be just as difficult as any other life. We're not immune from the trials of life. You know, we can be troubled. We can be stirred up. Being a Christian doesn't mean that, that you never are like, you know, the, the Coke can that's shaken up. Maybe you're troubled this morning. Maybe you're in turmoil because of things going on in your life as a Christian. and You wonder, where is God? Is God listening to me? Does God answer my prayers? I've been praying this for a while. Why doesn't he answer? It can feel lonely and alone. So Jesus goes on to give them encouragement, and that's the rest of this little section, verses 1 to 7. Jesus goes on to try to, to tell them, look, don't freak out, don't be panicked. I know I'm leaving, I'm not going to be here, but I want to encourage you, I want to give you hope, I want to help you get through this. And he gives them three reasons, at least that I can see here, to be encouraged and to have hope. Uh, th- three, three, um, three things they're supposed to be doing instead of panicking in his absence, and the first one is right there in verse 1. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So here's the first one. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Look, instead of panicking, you need to trust me. Trust God. Trust me. You could also translate that, believe in God. Believe also in me. You could also translate that, have faith in God. Have faith in me. You know, we use tr- believe, trust, faith. In Greek, it's all one word. It's just one word that can be translated all those ways. And that's that word there. So he's saying, like, have faith in me. You've got to have faith. This is the bottom line about the Christian life. You just have to accept this. It's just a fact. The Christian life is a life of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And at some point in the Christian life, you have to just realize that, that it's, it's a step of faith. We, we don't see Christ. We walk by faith in him. And... That's something to accept. You know, sometimes I talk to people uh, who, who um, you know, say, hey, you know, I got this friend who's, who doesn't believe in God. What do I tell them to prove that God is real? Or I've had in a couple of occasions people say to me, look, I don't believe in God. Prove to me that God is real. 
And the, the couple times I've had those conversations, I usually preface what I say with this. I say, okay, I, I can give you evidences. I can give you rational arguments for why belief in God is not irrational and superstitious. I, 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 can, show, I can give you those evidences, but you need to know up front, even after I lay it all out, it still requires faith. You know, I, I can show you it's not irrational blind faith, but at some point you have to take a step of faith because it's by faith. And I also like to point out, even if you don't believe in God, do you realize you are living by faith? Everyone lives by faith. Nobody lives a life that is, that is completely determined by only those things that can be proved empirically. I mean, no one lives that way. We all have faith in something and some kinds of things. We all take steps of faith somewhere in what we believe and what we think. Uh, we have faith in ideas like capitalism or democracy or socialism or the American dream. And we, we believe that those ideas are true and that they can guide our lives, even though it's tough to prove that completely. We, uh, we put faith in people. We put faith in what other people tell us. Uh, we, we put faith in, in all kinds of things we can't know for certain. Um, you know, my wife and I were just talking. We were out for a walk this week, and we were talking about the economy and how troubled it is. And it's like, you know, what, what, what do you do with what little money you have? How do you protect it? You know, and some people say, you know, oh, you keep in the stock market, ride it out. You know, it's over time, that's the way to go. Other people are saying, no, the whole system's going to crash. You need to buy gold. And, like, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about it to know which of those is right. And so I listen. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to me trusting somebody who I think is probably the person I should listen to about what to do with money. And even the experts, they don't know 100%. Who knows? So there's all these steps of faith we have to take in our lives. We do it all the time. Even if you're a skeptic, even if you're like, you know, I don't believe anything unless it can be proven to me, you've already taken a step of faith. You've put faith in your own reason. You believe by unproven, that your reason is sound enough and accurate enough to be able to assess data enough to reach right conclusions. But you can't prove that. That's something you have to accept. You you, you can't prove to your reason by your reason that your reason works. I mean, that's circular logic. And so, are you skeptical of your skepticism? Hmm? How, How really thorough of a skeptic are you? So we all live by faith. That's my point. And Jesus is standing up among all the things we put our faith in, all those things that have have looked like hope and have let us down, and he says, trust in God, trust also in me. Jesus is the only one who never breaks his promises. God is the only one who never breaks his word. God is also the only one who has the power to fulfill everything he says. He's the only, ultimately, 100% foolproof, trustworthy person is God. And Jesus says, trust in God, trust in me. And so that's where it starts, is that realizing that, that this life, no matter what you believe in or where you go, you've got to have faith in something. We all live by faith to some degree or another. And so Christ calls us to faith in him. And so when he's gone, understand that it's a life of faith and it's a life of trust, but it's, it's not foolish faith. It's not blind faith. But here's the second thing that he tells us here in these verses to give us encouragement in his absence a second encouragement so that our hearts would not be troubled as we live without him here. And it's in verses two through four. The second thing is, this is really great, he gives us his itinerary while he's gone. So it's not like I'm leaving, I'll see you, I'll never be back. We know where he's gone and what he's doing. It's cool. It's like a husband you know, going on a business trip and give, telling his wife, right, 
here's my plane schedule. This is where I'll be staying. I'll be at this conference this day. You can reach me at these hours. Here's my itinerary. There it is. And he gives us his itinerary. There's three parts to it. Number one, where he's going. Look at verses two to four. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So he's, we know where he's going. He's going to the father's house, which is what? What's the father's house? Heaven? You know, it's where God is. It's, uh, in John, uh, you know, heaven is above and the earth is below. The, Jesus comes from above from the Father. So there's this dualism between above and below, between heaven and the world that is in rebellion against heaven. You get these images in the John, light and dark, life and death. Uh, it, these, these two realms, and God is in one and we live in this world filled with the other one. And Jesus has come from the one down to us. So Jesus says, I'm going back there to heaven, to the Father's house. Number two, we know what he's doing when he's there. Did Jesus go back to the Father's house because he just had, had it with this world? You know, I was here for 30 years with you guys, and whew, I need a sabbatical from earth because this is a mess. So I'm going to go home and chill out there for a while. No, no, no. He's, he's going to prepare a place. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to get a place ready for you. In the ancient world, um, you know, you'd have a lot of farms. Most of the world for most of human history is farmed. Uh, and, and in the ancient world, you had these farms and these estates. And uh, in Israel, there, there was land that was given from generation to generation. And, uh, and, and so you'd have a, a father's house, and he would perhaps farm a piece of land. He'd have children. And when maybe one of his sons or sons got old enough to start farming with him and have their own families, you know, they might have a house next to the father's house. So that sometimes estate farms would have these kind of compounds of families that all lived near one another. Uh, last uh, week, my, some of my dad's relatives from Nebraska were out here. My dad's from Nebraska, my mom's from Iowa, and some of them are still farmers. They all grew up farmers. Some of them are still farming out there uh, in the heartland. And, and that's what they do. You know, you, like you go to the family farm, and there's the new house that the dad built and lived into, and next to it's the old house the dad used to live in, but now the daughter lives in it, and her husband farms the land with him. And so you have these little families, little homes all together. And so here's this idea that in the father's estate, in the father's land, in his home, we have a, a place. There's a place for us. And Jesus says, I'm not just taking off. I'm not leaving you. I'm getting, you re- getting it ready for you so that you have a home and a place with the father. I'm going ahead. Do you ever, I, I don't know if you do this, do you ever just kind of wonder what it's going to be like? What the, is, like, is it streets of gold, wedding feast of the lamb, 24-7 buffet? Like, what is it? Like, little kids like to dream. Little kids like to imagine heaven. What's heaven going to be like? What's it going to be like up there? I don't, I don't know if any of you kids here have ever seen the movie uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. That movie is hilarious. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I just laugh my head off watching it. It's as funny for adults as it is for kids. But it's about this crazy scientist who creates a satellite that, that makes it rain down food, and he can program what food rains down. And so, you know, it's like this island where he lives, all this food, you know, the spaghetti's falling out of the sky, and, and he makes this, uh, he has this kind of girl that he's interested in, so he makes this huge jello house. The whole house is made of jello, and it's like jello slides and jello everything, and they're bouncing around, you can eat the house. And, you know, is that what heaven's like? Is it like a big jello world? 
or Skittles or cake or I don't know, whatever you like. You know, kids, kids can get really imaginative really fast. Will there be ponies there to ride? Will there be a huge screen the size of the one at uh, Fenway with an Xbox hook up to it? Like, what is, you know, what is that dream? What is heaven like? And we adults try to think of it too. And, you know, is it like the, the Newport mansions down in Rhode Island? You know, you go down to the Newport mansions and got to go see the breakers, right? That's the, the granddaddy of them all, the Vanderbilt house. And you go in that place with like the marble floors and you stand in that main entryway. And you think like, is this what the father's house is like? Except gold instead of marble. Maybe this is what my place is like in the father's house. You know, you just wonder. Or maybe you're one of those adults that's like, I like the jello thing. I would, maybe that's what I want, the jello house. I don't know. It's, it's fun to imagine. But you know, I think that all those things kind of miss the point a little bit. Because what makes the Father's house so desirable is that the Father is in the house. John Piper asks a question in his book, God is the Gospel. It's a great read if you're looking for something to read. God is the Gospel. John Piper asks the question, if God was not in heaven... Would heaven be heaven? If you could live forever, if there were streets of gold, if the wedding feast of the Lamb was open 24-7, and there was no more sickness and no more dying, but God wasn't there, would heaven really be heaven? You know, what, what makes heaven so heavenly and desirable is that the Father is there. It's God who is the ultimate soul-satisfying happiest being in the universe. It's God that makes heaven so wonderful. That's why I want to be in the Father's house. If God isn't there, I don't want to go there. I want to, you know, if God is on the moon, I want to go to the moon. Like, where is God? I want to be in his presence forever. That's the heart cry of the Christian. You know, you know we, we want to go to this happy place. It, it, one of the places, the happy places we go here in this world, especially New Englanders, is uh, we, we make the trip down to Disney World. The happiest place on earth, right? You do. Like, you, you know, you get sick of things here. It's the winter. It's cold. You take a vacation down to Orlando. And, uh, and you walk into Disney World and everything is like, happy. <laughs> There's no trash, like not a spot. Everyone you see is like, hi, welcome. You know, I'm so glad you're here. You know, here's mouse ears. <laughs> ah, you know, that actually, actually, the mouse ears cost like 12 bucks, but, you know, um, and, and, you know, it's like fun and music, and actually, I, I told this story in the first service. I had a lady come up to me, and she said, I used to work at Disney on the weekends in Orlando, and she said, if you were ever caught being negative, you were fired on the spot. If you ever were like, you know, snar- snarled in anybody, if, if you didn't make everyone feel like they were the most important person in the world, you were summarily fired. Because it's the happiest place on earth. It's great. You know, music and, and uh, lines and screaming people and expensive food. It's the happiest place on earth. <laughs> We're all looking for the happiest place. But you know, the happiest place is not a place. It's a person. God is the happiest being in the universe. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are forever happy and blessed. It is God, within God's self, is the most joyous, soul-satisfying, delightful celebration of God's self ever. 
anything we've ever experienced in this life that is in any way satisfying or that made us happy was but a dim reflection and a gift from the giver. You know, you know, what have you really been happy in this life? Maybe you have like little snapshot moments. It was, yeah, it was that trip with my parents when I was a kid and there was that one time on the beach and it seemed like if I could have frozen that moment, we were all happy and we were all laughing. Or, or maybe it was a moment when you accomplished something at work and you, you, after all that blood, sweat, and tears, you finally felt like you got some respect and you got something done. Or maybe it, it was a Thanksgiving meal or maybe it was when you, you held a lover in your arms. Or maybe it was, you know, a concert you heard, you know, done by, uh, you know, the Boston Pops, and it felt like in that moment it was sublime. You know, all of those moments of satisfaction and happiness are gifts from God. But what must the gift giver be like who can create those things? And what would it be like to be with Him and not just the gifts? People fly all over the world to go stand in front of the Alps and just be satisfied with the Alps or to be satisfied and amazed at the Grand Canyon or, or to stand in awe of a sunset in Hawaii. You know, what's it like to be the guy who made all those things? You know, heaven is to, to be satisfied forever in the Father's presence. And Jesus says, don't freak out. I'm just going to go give you a place there. Not a visitor, not a tourist, a place where you live. That's your future. So why are you freaking out? (laughs) We just had another cheery, unifying election in America uh, where it's great. Now you can't talk to half the other Americans, depending on how you voted. And and people just, man, they just get so riled up. It's, It's so annoying. And, you know, I... I you know, we all believe what we believe politically, and yet it also stinks that we're all so divided. And yeah, some people like about the election, and they go, "Whew, America just dodged a bullet. We're safe for another four years." You ask other people about the election, and they go, "America is going down the toilet." Some people say, "My country was protected." Others say, "My country is lost." And I just want to say, as a Christian, neither of those responses is totally adequate. Because this isn't my country in the final analysis. I mean, it is. I'm an American. I love my country. I'm a patriot. But when I became a Christian, I have a longing for my true country and my true home, which isn't any place or any country in this world. Isn't that weird being a Christian? We're like, you're part of a country, you're part of this world, you care. I'm not saying we should all just become kind of mystics that don't connect to the world. We're, we're in this world. We're fighting for causes and trying to do what's right and make our businesses better and make our families better. But at the same time that we're doing all that, there's this other like program running in our minds and our hearts that says, this isn't it. It's not my home. And, and then I, I hang out with like a Christian from Peru or I hang out with a Christian from China or a Christian from Korea, and I feel a kinship and affinity with them that I don't feel with other Americans that don't know Jesus, that's weird. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be with you forever. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to be with them. I'm going to be with you. We're going to the Father's house. So it just changes our perspective on this world. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm going. You know where I'm going? I'm going to the Father's house. I'm getting your place ready. It's not going to be like the Breaker's Mansion where you walk through, but you can't go past that red rope. You can just go wherever you want. It's going to be your place. 
and the Father's there. You know, you can go in the Father's room. You can go see the Father. Oh, that's where I want to go. And then the third thing on the itinerary, this is awesome. He's coming back. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Unfortunately, the, the day and the time of that part of the itinerary got cut off, so we don't know that, which is frustrating. But we know he's coming back. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. This is the cool thing, though. I do know that today, November 18th, is one day closer to him coming back than yesterday, November 17th. I know that. We're getting closer. There's a sense that we're approaching his return. And so for the Christian life, it's not just futility. You know, you know life can feel like Groundhog Day, you know that movie, where it's like guy keeps, uh, Bill Murray just keeps waking up, it's the same day over and over again. He has to keep reliving it. it. You know, you can have Groundhog Day without being in the movie. If you ever commuted to work, you got to work and you don't remember actually driving there, <laughs> that's a bad feeling. How <laughs> did I get here? Some, some part of my brain was driving the car that I was unaware of. That's really weird. It's a bad experience, bad feeling. Or, or do you ever feel like you're in school and the whole day went by at school and you can't remember really what happened? And, and your parents are like, what happened today? You're like, nothing. And it's because that's what you remember. It's like nothing. It just was like Groundhog Day. Or it's the same laundry that you folded how many times or the same dishes that you load and unload, and you know, just over and over. And we could just feel like, you know, maybe the Hindus and the Buddhists are right. Maybe life doesn't go anywhere. Maybe it's all just a big circle of birth and rebirth and Groundhog Day. And here's Jesus saying, no, 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 no. In the midst of all that, we as Christians are moving through it to the day when I'm returning. History, though it has a cyclical feel because of sin in the world, is ultimately linear because God is sovereign, and he's coming back. So every day is a day closer to that day. So we can be filled with joy even in this life. Again, if I could quote that book from John Piper, God is the Gospel, he tells another story in it. It's a really good story, but I think he stole it from someone else. That's what preachers do. We just steal stories. But he, uh, he tells a story. He says, imagine a, a POW camp in World War II with allied soldiers in the POW camp. Um, you know, British soldiers and American and French resistance fighters. And, and you see them through the fence and you look at them and they're like, gaunt and and hollow because they've been malnourished in the camp and they've got welts and missing teeth from getting beat up by the guards and their clothes are threadbare from you know just living in a camp and they're kind of free you know cold they're walking around trying to stay warm with their thin clothes on but as you get closer to the fence and listen you realize they're laughing and they're talking and you see them and they're smiling and they're happy and they got a spring in their step so you call one of the, the prisoners over you're like what's going on why are you guys so happy and the guy's like, shh, we snuck a radio into the camp, and we just heard some good news that the allies have broken through, that the battle is over, that now it's just a matter of time before they arrive here to liberate us, and we're going home, you know? Like, that's our situation as Christians. We go through all the same hard knocks of life, but there should be this joy in our step because Jesus has won the decisive victory, on the cross and through his resurrection, he's defeated all my worst enemies. You know, my worst enemies. And they aren't politicians. I've got worse enemies than that. I've got the devil beaten. I've got the world subdued. I've got, you know, my own sin forgiven. My worst enemy is myself. 
forgiven through his blood. And I'm free. Even death has been conquered. I don't even have to be afraid to die anymore. Because if Christ is raised, I'll be raised. <sighs> Hallelujah. We, we, we're victorious in Christ. And so we have this joy in our hearts as Christians, even as we get pummeled by life sometimes, because we know that he's coming back. And so, brothers and sisters, don't freak out. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Number one, have faith. Number two, we got his itinerary. And then just quickly, the last point. We know how to get to the Father's house. We know the way. Verse four, you know the way to the place where I'm going. You guys, you all know how to get to the Father's house. I love Thomas, verse five, doubting Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Don't you love people who have the courage to say the thing that everyone's thinking, but no one's... As I never really say it. I'm always the person who just kind of smiles and is polite, but I, I love the people around me who are like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus, at all. I don't know where you're going, and so I, how do I know how to get there? Like, the Garmin doesn't work unless you give me an address. If you give me an address, then I'll know the way, but I don't know the way because I don't know where you're going. And we say to Thomas, oh, Thomas, don't be so obtuse. He's going to heaven. So you all know where that is, right? Is it in the sky? Is it in outer space? Is it behind Jupiter? Is heaven a parallel dimension? Like, what? I don't know where heaven is. So I, you know, actually, I'm, you know, Thomas, that's a darn good question. I, I don't know where heaven is. So I don't know how to get there, Jesus. What's the way to get to a place where I don't know where it is? And that just sets Jesus up for one of the great pronouncements in John, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am. I am the way. I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's one of these great I am statements. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. John 8, I am. Nothing. I just is. He's God. And then here, I am the way. You know, what a great question. How do you get to God? What's the way to heaven? Do you keep the five pillars of Islam? Do you accomplish the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church? Do you walk the eightfold path of Buddhism? Do you uh, do the 12 steps of AA? I mean, like, how do you get to heaven? And Jesus is saying, I'm the way. It's not steps. It's not ticking things off. It's me. He's the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus, it's all Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one we trust in. He, he, doesn't, he not only says trust in God, but trust also in me. Think about that. That's putting himself equal with God. And then he says, I'm the one who's going. I'm the one who's preparing. I'm the one who's coming back. So are we surprised at all when it's like, what's the way? Well, that's me too. It's me, it's me, it's me. And now I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, that's why Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other way to heaven. This is why. Because Jesus is the only one who died for my sins and rose again. <laughs> you know, There's lots of philosophers. There's lots of good teachers that can help you learn how to lead a better life. But my, the thing that's keeping me out of heaven is my sin. It's the fact that I have lived a life where I've pretended that I was God. 
And in order to be forgiven of that, I need more than just someone telling me how to live my life better. I need someone to forgive me. And Jesus is the only way because he's the one who made the way. He died for me. His blood washes away my sin. The reason I can have confidence to say I'm going to be in the Father's house is not because I belong there. It's because he forgave me and now I'm clothed in his royal sonly robes to to step in and say I am a child of God by virtue of Christ's righteousness covering me. And so the reason he's the only way to God is because he's the only one who made a way through my sin by dying and rising again. Or maybe we could put it this way. Every religion and every philosophy, including atheism, will get you to God. But only Jesus can get us to God as Father. All the others will get you to God, but you'll meet him not as your father, but as your judge. So we need to come to God through Jesus, who is one with the Father, who was sent to take care of that which was separating us from the Father in mercy. Like we sang in that song, I once was your enemy, now I'm adopted. It's amazing, it's amazing grace. It's the way to God. Does that surprise you? Does that sound funny to you? How'd you grow up? What'd you hear when you were a kid? Maybe you're in a mosque or a synagogue or maybe you went to CCD or maybe you're in a fundamentalist Baptist church or Nazarene church. I mean, what did you hear? Like, like, what did you pick up about how to get to God? And I think what a lot of us heard, probably many of us heard, was you got to do these things. You got to keep these rituals or go through that ritual or do this or don't do that. You know, don't smoke, don't watch R-rated movies. You got to fast. You've got to Whatever it is, you know, and we had this kind of checklist, like if I do these things, maybe I'm not sure I'm getting to heaven, but I'm probably more likely to get there than not. That's definitely going to help me. Might as well hedge my bets. And this is totally different, what Jesus is saying there. He's saying that the way to heaven is not a to-do list or rituals or religion. He's saying the way to heaven is a person. It's knowing and loving somebody and trusting somebody who is Jesus himself. What if what, if what we all heard growing up was, was off? <laughs> and what if what Jesus is telling us here is that you could do all that stuff and never know God? Or you could know Christ who died for our sins and rose again. Can I just lead us in a prayer? I'd like to, to pray with you and for you. If you just bow your heads and if you, um, if you don't know Christ and you want to know him and turn away from your sin and trust him as your savior, you know, just take this time in your own heart, in your own words to tell him that, to turn away from sin and trust in Christ. Or maybe you're a skeptic and you just need to tell God, if you're there, I want to know you, Jesus. So show me who you are. Are you skeptical enough of your skepticism to pray that kind of prayer? And Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who do know you, that you would continue to call us to a deep fellowship with you. Forgive us, Jesus, even as Christians, of going back 
to a ritualized, mechanized, behavioralized Christianity that is devoid of fellowship with you. Lord Jesus, we want to know you and to know the Father through the Holy Spirit. So, Lord Jesus, would you call this church closer and closer to you so that we have a deep longing to be in the Father's house. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.